and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than simply their cholesterol and their weight that we are the integrated sum of complex parts, what I call the four I's, information, inputs, infrastructure, and insight. Our stories live in our bodies. We begin by acknowledging the inseparability of mental and physical health. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you, the listener, to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com slash newsletter and to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. This week's episode is going to be a rocking one as I'm joined by the incredible musician and songwriter Hamilton Lighthouser, otherwise known as Ham. Ham comes from a very musically inclined family, which I know firsthand because he and I are first cousins. We're actually like brother and sister. Ham was the lead vocalist of the band The Walkmen, originally founded by my brother, Walter Martin, in 2000. Ham went solo in 2014 and has since released a number of critically acclaimed albums, like his 2014 collaboration with Rostam from Vampire Weekend and his 2020 album, The Loves of Your Life. His most recent project was composing the original score for the HBO Max series, The Last Movie Stars, directed by his dear friend, Ethan Hawke. Ham, I am thrilled to talk to you today about your music, the creative process, about anxiety, and about grief. Thanks for having me, Lou. Let's talk about how it all started. Let me just say this first. I remember how it started because I was there doing my homework. Your basement. Yeah, I I was doing my homework with like earplugs in trying to bang out my math assignments, listening to drums, guitars, worst music (laughs) in the Del Mar Peninsula. And a lot of loud noise coming out of my basement. I mean, it was like the revolving door of musicians. And, you know, when I look back on that, I think that was such an incredibly magical time. At least for me, it's part of why I kind of have a bit of like calm amidst chaos because I was born out of that childhood experience. Right. My brother is a professional musician. Your dad is a multi-talented guy, including a musician, plays harmonica with you, including on like national platforms. Your wife, Anna, participates in your music. My nieces, your daughters participate. With my quarantine band, yeah. With your quarantine band. So How did it all start? When did you know you wanted to be a musician? When did it all kind of come to fruition? I guess the earliest thing I can think of is my dad's band at the uh, Arlington Chili Cook-Off and seeing my dad up there singing. And not that I ever at that moment thought that I was going to do it, but it definitely came naturally to me later when me and your younger brother and Hugh started our first band in your basement. And everyone was like, who's going to sing? And he said, I'm not singing. Harry's like, I'm not singing. And I was like, okay, I'll sing. And it was just sort of, I think it was probably because I'd seen my dad do it. I just thought, I'll be the singer. Fine. Our grandmother was also an opera singer, a piano teacher. Yep. 
I dabbled in piano. Yeah, it comes by naturally. I, I wonder if like seeing my uncle, your dad up on stage and that ease that that he had. And he, I mean, he just oozed cool up there on stage. Yeah, it was it was cool. It was cool. The chili cook off was pretty cool. The chili was really, really cool. The chili was really quite good, but the music yeah. was amazing. And so you felt like it was like a natural fit when everybody was like, hey, who's going to be the singer? Yeah, like it just didn't feel that weird when I said it. Harry and he were absolute. The other guys, absolute no. And I didn't have an absolute no. So I was the weakest link in the chain there. So I just said, sure. Then we went off to college and started, tried to get a little more serious. I was in Boston and the Boston music scene was, I, I played every single club there four or five times. And then we went to New York and played one show, which was at midnight on Easter Sunday, the night of the last Seinfeld episode, I remember. And that one horrible time slot where they paid us, I think $25 <laughs> was better than every Boston show we'd ever played. And we all realized we're in the wrong city for this. So we moved to New York. I really, at that point had made up my mind that I was doing this no matter what. And I was willing to take some hits and we took some hits. We played some really, really bad shows one time we played at this club called coney island high which was on saint mark's place big club we were the headlining band of the night the only two people that came to the concert were my friend nick and my friend josh and halfway through the concert when we were between songs they said uh hey, we gotta go see you later man. and we were like see you guys and they uh left Over and the back door and we finished the set for the bartender who was in the back of this enormous room oh my god and we loaded out in the rain and i remember thinking this isn't exactly what I dreamed of. That's the perfect segue. Here you are, this front man in a very successful band. You go on to performing yourself, solo career. And as recently as the fall, I flew out to Indianapolis to watch you perform as I have before. And it's just so interesting, the juxtaposition of looking at you, Ham, up on stage, tall, handsome, confident, singing your face off by the way i don't know how you maintain your voice because you have so much energy and soul i don't i really don't know anyway juxtaposed to that the image of you kind of fearless and confident is what you and i have talked about is this sort of vulnerability and anxiety about being in the music industry which has been kind of stripped down to the studs over the course of the last two decades being your own boss being your own creative North Star at the whims of fans and likes and clicks. And then also your own personal vulnerabilities of like, am I good? Is this song worth anything? Are people going to like it? Can you talk to me a little bit about what that's like to be expected to be this confident badass, which you are, and mm. having a human behind the scenes? Right. I got over stage fright. So I don't have even an inkling of that anymore. That used to be my biggest fear. I remember going on stage with Pete Bauer and watching him throw up as we walked onto the stage and then just go out and pick up his guitar, wiping sweat off because he was just... <laughs> I shouldn't I mean, be I laughing like, because... Was... No, 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 it's fine. I mean, that, that was when we were 18 or 19 or something. And I was right there with him. I never actually threw up. It was just the most nerve-wracking situation that you're going to get up and you're going to... You wrote this thing and you're going to present it for these people and your pants are going to fall off or something's going to go wrong or are you going to shock yourself with the microphone or something like that or your amp blows up or something like that. That always just happens. So I got over that. I don't have that anymore. But the thing that I never got over and actually almost has gotten harder is the writing and then presenting something to knowing that this is my idea and I really love it. And now I'm going to give it out to the world to just tear apart. And some people will like it and some people will ignore it and some people will 
dismiss it or focus on it with their negativity. As I get older, I'm sure this happens to a lot of people, it gets harder to feel like you've reinvented yourself to the point where this is something that you should present, even if you like it, even if you get to a point where this is great, I love this, but you know what, I've done this before. And people know that I've done this before, even though I think I built this thing successfully. And is this thing worth sharing? With yeah. Anybody? And that kind of anxiety, that can drive you crazy because especially when you don't have, I don't have a band anymore to, to bounce ideas off. So that can, you know, there's no right answer. Are you psyched on it? That's the only thing you can come up with. You just got to trust your intuition. When you're with a band, you're always bouncing ideas off each other. You're kind of pressure testing concepts and sounds and hooks and on your own. I mean, you can still do that. You're your own coach, your own cheerleader, your own creative engine. Right. I mean, you have to, motivate yourself to do it do i need to do another record right now do i want to do is it worth doing another record right now do i need to write this song you know i spend all day every day working on it and you think i don't need to do this but then if you have that when you have that inspiration you just have this feeling like i do need to do this i have to do this right now i gotta finish this and this is great and people need to hear this the best music that I ever come up with is always the stuff where you just, you feel like you absolutely have to, it usually goes pretty fast too. The ones that take a long time usually aren't as good. The ones that are fast and done. And then you think, okay, somebody, I got to get this done. That's where you find your confidence is that moment, of, that initial inspiration moment where you think that the song is just fantastic. It sounds like it's when you're leading with your heart and your passion and not head and you're not overthinking it or overanalyzing it or criti right. critical of it. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's like, I wonder what comes first. Maybe if you intellectualize and like think hard about what you want to say, then the inspiration comes or does inspiration come and then you overanalyze it? I don't know. It's never the same thing twice, unfortunately. It would be great if it was. Yeah, it'd be great if there was a formula. I mean, your songs, like so many musicians and artists, but yours in particular, and I think the same is true of my brother Walt, are personal and emotional and textured and in some ways autobiographical. And so I can imagine the vulnerability of putting something out there to the world that is that personal and intimate. And not, not only the stories that you're telling, but the amount of energy and time and... The physical exhaustion of touring and stuff too, which that's a whole other ball of wax. That's just, as you get older, that just gets physically tougher to do. Yeah, I remember when like Walt and the Walkman and the Jonathan Fire Reader before that were touring and getting these invitations. And I was like, oh, my God, I get to live like the rock star life. And then it's like, wait a minute, that got old really fast. Yeah, I mean, we had our fun, too. We did. And then the, the funny part, you know, everybody complained about touring all for all these years. And then everybody started having kids. And then like people started flying in a day early and stuff like that. And you definitely notice like it's the only time people actually were getting a full night's sleep. Yeah. Like, like the hotel tour. room was actually like a refuge from. It was like the only quiet, clean place that you had in your life anymore. What is it like when you put out a piece of music that you have created from your heart and soul and you're putting it out there for the masses and you don't know if it's going to be accepted, liked, shredded, because you will get a, a, the rainbow of responses, right? Yeah, I think I mean, no matter you who you are, anything out. even if you're Beyonce, yeah. do you brace for that? Do you prepare for that? Do you not care anymore? No, you don't not care. I mean, if you didn't care, it would be sort of depressing because then what's the point of even doing it in the first place? No, of course you care about it. If you didn't care, the music probably wouldn't be that good. And then there's like influential publications and it's a boost if somebody confirms that it's great or something like that. And it sucks when you trash you or something like that, or just ignore you. 
because you definitely there was a moment where you were sure this was the next hit or whatever your music is you it's something doesn't have to be about you but it's you you were the only person now i'm the only person there when it's created it was my idea and so when somebody bashes it down they're bashing at me you know i mean you get hardened to it you get i definitely am not devastated anymore when i was younger i would be devastated the first couple of times that kind of thing happened and somebody just trashed me or something it was you know take the wind out of yourself it's just strange to see your name in print especially if it's like a famous journalist or something like that your name in print and then somebody just trashing you or if you hear people on a podcast or something just try just oh well that's gonna be the next section when you get offline i'm gonna just trash you no i'm kidding yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah like i mean it's just weird you've never heard people gossip about you before. right it's strange it's just a strange human moment you've never had that before people who live authentic lives want constructive feedback and constructive criticism but the world we live in unfortunately is full of a lot of haters. I mean, I don't know if Miley Cyrus came up with haters are going to hate, but I'll credit uh, her for a second. But haters are going to hate no matter what you put out. Well, hate actually doesn't hurt as much because it does feel sort of just like, oh, you're just another troll or whatever. It's more sort of a, a carefully considered attack or, or <laughs> dismissal or something. You know what I mean? That can get under your skin. At the end of the day, most of us define our self-esteem at least in part through what we do professionally and what we put out into the world. And so it would be normal, especially when you're younger, to like hang your self-esteem on the reviews or the external validation. But right. I'm assuming yeah. that like me or like anybody, when you get older, you kind of learn that like, okay, my self-esteem is not about other people's vision of me. In fact, what other people think about me is not actually really my business, except that kind of it is because... I'm an empathetic right. person and I care about how I project. Right. I mean, do you think that's part of it? It's just like getting older and getting more comfortable in your own skin and getting comfortable with your process? Yeah. And you can refine things in a good way. I mean, some people will obviously always say that you've like lost your edge or your youthful energy or whatever, but then, you know, maybe you reach a new crowd or maybe you're doing a new thing. So when I came out to Indianapolis, when Walt and I flew out and we were watching you, I was like, oh my God, that guy's good. <laughs> it's funny. I was texting my kids. 44 years. Yeah. I mean, Ham, don't get me wrong. I've always known you were good. No, no, no. It's just I've funny. always known you were good, but I was texting with my kids and with my husband. And I was like, Ham's really good. And so my point here is that you're like a fine wine. Like you've gotten better with age. I think you've gotten more confident and you've gotten more polished and like you're just so entertaining. And I said well, to thanks. Walt, I'm yeah, like, I mean is it because it's Ham that I'm really enjoying myself or is he good? And Walt's like, no, he's good. He's good. Nice to hear. Thank you. Yeah, that was fun. Who would have thought we'd bring it so well in Indianapolis? I mean, you brought, you brought it. You brought it. Tell me about the process of creating this original score with HBO and Ethan Hawke, your friend. Yeah. I mean, what was that like? That's sort of a new venture for you. Completely new. And it's something I would like to do again, actually. I was probably spoiled because I happened to be really good friends with the director. So he and I could just sort of text back and forth. And we have sort of similar music and he's a big fan of mine. So it was very easy communication from the beginning to the end. It was great. And he made it such a streamlined process. I would imagine if you were working with someone you didn't know as well, that it might not go quite as smoothly as that. It was great because it was sort of more of a work for hire, but it was a completely creative venture. And I had all these people to bounce. It's kind of felt like kind of the opposite of what doing a record. It was like, here's episode five. We need about 30 minutes of music. We need this many parts are very dark and sad. This many are exciting. This, you know, here's a romantic part. And I could go home with all of those thoughts and figure out what instruments I wanted to do and whatever, and then record them all and then send them in. And most of the time it just worked. But sometimes you have to adjust, but that was what was fun about it. There's a plan in place that somebody else has kind of constructed and you're fulfilling that. 
it was such a great change of pace for me as opposed to this like i wake up every day it's just like you got to build your own schedule you got to tell yourself i got to finish this song today i got to figure these four things out today you know if you break that rule there was never anyone else making up that plan except for you so you've only let yourself down lack of structure can be just like basically the most intimidating thing of all the lack of structure, which is true for a lot of people in the creative space, and certainly for you as a solo artist, can be so destabilizing. I mean, you and I have talked about the anxiety associated with having to produce and not having like the kind of infrastructure that you have, like when you're in school or when you have like an HBO saying, hey, give me this song by Friday. Like, how does that anxiety manifest in you? And then how do you cope with it? I don't know if I do a great job coping with it, but I didn't have anxiety when I was younger. I've come to realize that I do now. I don't know if everybody does at our age or something like that, or if it's because of my job, but it definitely is one of those things where it's being in the band has always been more like being in school than it's like when I had a day job at the Metropolitan Museum, because it's like, you got to do that term paper that's in the back of your head. You're like, oh my God, I haven't even started that yet. Or, you know, that's not going so well. It's just nagging you on a Saturday night. It's nagging you on a Sunday, you know, when you're doing it, it's nagging you at dinner. And it's never, ever, ever goes away. And so that, as I get old, just becomes the nagging is louder and louder. And you start to think that I've worked five months and I came up with one song. That was 40 hours a week. Like the song's three minutes long. You know, what am I, what am I doing here? You know? Yeah. Like, a, like self-doubt and self-flagellation, it sounds like. The problem is you kind of need to be hard on yourself because if you're not trying to really break out of your own thing with you want to come up with something new where you actually do feel sort of shaky because it's new and that's a good thing but do you feel shaky because it's not that great or do you feel shaky because you got to trust yourself okay i don't really know where this is going but that's a good thing it can be very confusing i think that when you said does everyone have anxiety at this age i think the answer is yes i mean anxiety is part of the human condition like we're all anxious it's part of how we survive. It's why you don't walk into traffic. It's why you do the term paper and get it in on time. Or it's why you have that stage fright. It's like anxiety is built in into our DNA. But it's not a question of do you have anxiety? It's a question of to what extent? What are the triggers? And then how do you manage it? How do you calibrate it so that anxiety is just enough to get the job done and you can right. sleep at night, but not taking on of a life of its own so that it is in the driver's seat? As yeah. I say to my patients, we want anxiety to be a lowercase anxiety where you are in the driver's seat of your anxiety, ideally, instead of it driving the bus. Because when you're at the mercy of your emotional health, then it's like the wheels just come off the bus. How do you grab the wheel? I think the first thing is self-awareness, like knowing that you have anxiety. I think a lot of people don't realize they have anxiety. They think, oh, this is just how uh -huh. I am. I mean, you only have one brain. It's hard to kind of compare your brain to someone else's when you've only lived in one brain. So having an awareness that it's a thing, being aware of the psychological, emotional, physical manifestations of it, like excess worry, sort of anticipatory, like the what if thinking, like living in the what ifs, you know, catastrophizing, you know, like some members of my family and me included. I mean, I've worked on anxiety my whole life intermittently, you know, they have a sore throat. It's like, oh my God, I have throat cancer. And then, and then there are the physical manifestations like palms sweating, heart racing, can't sleep, can't eat, migraines, you know. And then there are the behavioral manifestations from like my podcast guest earlier who self-medicated with 
alcohol, drugs, you know, starvation to try to manage internal discomfort. So this is a long way of saying, I think that it starts with awareness. And I think it's about building the tools, which I think you have internally already, like knowing that even if you have haters criticizing your music, that you have an internal sense of self-worth and then, you know, bouncing your ideas off of other people as a way of kind of getting support, social support, and then, you know, doing what you're doing right now, which is like taking time with your family and exercising and discharging adrenaline by doing physical activity. And then, of course, I'm a huge believer in like asking for help and doing therapy as needed, not because you have to do therapy, but because it's a sounding board. It's a place to put the thoughts on the table and look at them. Like when you clean out your closet, you like take all the crap out of there, figure out what goes to goodwill, what needs to be hemmed, what needs to be thrown out. And then you kind of re-put things in your closet so that your thoughts and feelings are kind of a little more organized and you're not just like at the mercy of this like noisy mess of holy shit feelings. Anyway, mm -hmm. that's my little explanation that I say to patients, but since you asked. Yeah, no, I'm interested to hear. Let's switch gears for a second. So we're related because our moms are sisters. Mm -hmm. Your mom, when I was growing up in particular, was like my other mom. In fact, yep. it kind of sucked growing up across the street when... My parents went out of town and I wanted to have a party and your parents were right across the street. And I was like, damn. Yep. We, you and I grew up across the street from each other in a merry band of five. And just to give this a little more color, I remember, I'm sure you do too, when you were like eight, I think, I was like this bossy older sibling cousin who like dressed up all of my brothers and cousins in like. I put you in a, like, was it you in a wedding dress or was it Harry in a wedding dress? And I think we may have both been in a wedding I dress. I think you might have both been in wedding dresses. And I was bossing people around, telling people where to go, doing like a little play for the parents. Everyone's kind of like miserable except me. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think Harry had like a tie and a veil on. It was a little confused. Tie and a veil. And Anna was like wearing a diaper and some like headdress and like yeah. drinking from a bottle. Anyway, so... You just lost your mom. We lost Aunt Baba in 2021. It was a devastating thing for our whole family and, of course, for you and your sister and your dad. I wonder if you are willing to, able to talk about what it's like to be already in this kind of vulnerable position of being a creator and putting your heart and soul out there on stage. And then, of course, COVID put a massive hold on a lot of your work and performing abilities and then your mom gets sick and then your mom dies can you talk a little bit about what that was like what it is like as a human and yeah. not just a rock star uh my mom got sick three years ago or something like that we began to notice that she was getting or sort of losing her a little bit so when covid came we all of my shows my record came out april 10th 2020 which was not a good day to put a record up and so I had this huge tour planned. The whole thing was canceled. And when it came out, it was kind of a schmozzle because physical deliveries on Amazon were halted. And I sort of rely on physical sales because people actually buy my vinyl as opposed to just streaming it. So it was just like a sort of all-encompassing bad situation. The city was so bad in New York. So we went to my parents' farm and we were living there. And my mom was really on the decline. The silver lining is that I was there to help a lot. And I think I did. So we were there for a year, I guess. Maybe a year and a half. That was a long time. COVID was a long time. You know, it was a steady decline. And then I finally had a tour booked for September 2021. And the first night of the tour, literally the first night of the tour, 
she had a real decline. She went to the hospital and she never came out. I flew back up and I saw her and I visited with her and stuff. But I was away when she uh, actually passed. It was so hard, but it, you know, it's one of those things where I have a friend and his, I was just talking, his dad died of cancer very quickly after the diagnosis. It was a horrible shock to their family. And it was a horrible shock for us too, but it was also something that we had all been picturing. We all knew it was coming. When it came, I can tell you, that doesn't make it any better, but it does, it's just different. I have a lot of friends that have actually sadly gone recently, like my age, which are all shocks, but you know, it's your mom. So it's different. I will say that since it happened, it sort of actually gets worse, the weight of it, because the sick personality sort of gets forgotten. The person's not on vacation, then they're not coming back. You've been away from them before in your life, but all of a sudden, you've never been away for six months. So the absence becomes much more pronounced as time goes on. And yeah. the whole sickness and then the funeral and every all of that just seems like this weird dream. I think back to when we were in the cathedral and stuff, it's just like, I can't believe that happened. The gathering and all the relatives coming in. It's just so strange, you know? Thanks for talking about it. I mean, I think it's a process and it's not surprising that that seems like a blur because I think one of the ways we kind of protect ourselves from falling apart in those moments is by being a little dissociated from the reality, not intentionally necessarily, but just sort of, it's hard to be like present in all those moments because they're so painful. And then I remember, you know, you had this tour scheduled and there was this conversation, your mom has just passed away. Should you go on tour that you put on hold for the entire time right. of the pandemic or should you not? And unanimously, all of us said, you need to go. This is what your no, mom would have really wanted you to do. I really appreciate you guys. I know. I really appreciate you guys saying that and my dad and my sister and Walt and you and because it's new territory, you have absolutely no idea what you should be doing. And of course, there's really like no answer to that. But I knew that my mom would want me to keep going and do that. So that was always in the back of my head. But then having all you guys saying like, my dad said, you know, he's like, you could come home, you'll just be sitting here with me. And to be honest, it's not any better. Though. It's not just because you're home, your mom's still gone. She would have wanted you to play. And she was with you, I think, in spirit. And she I mean, at the risk of making myself cry, or you cry, like she was your number one fan. She was my number one fan. Still is. You know, one of the things I was thinking about when I was watching you perform was, and I am getting a little choked up, is how you were able to compartmentalize those feelings and be up there and entertain thousands yeah. of people. That's called compartmentalization, which can be a negative coping strategy. But in the case of being right. on stage, that's a good coping strategy. And I remember you saying to me back in the tour bus, like, I don't know if that's healthy, Lou, to be compartmentalizing. And I'm like, Ham, I think it is. I think it is. That's a skill. Yeah, I didn't know if I was going to have this like collapse or something that I didn't see coming or something like that. But if you worry about it, or you think about it, you could always finally fall back on the thought, okay, all my living family wants me to be here. And I know that my mom would want me to be here. She would tell me, you got it. You have to keep doing this. And she so, would have been really annoyed if you had. Yeah, she would have. She, she would have been like, yeah, hey, come on. Yeah, exactly. People probably thought it was maybe bizarre or whatever. But then I thought, you know, I don't care. We well, do do got to do what's right for you. And I don't think that touring and doing your job and performing is mutually exclusive with you taking the time to process loss and grief and mourn in an appropriate way. I mean, I think you can do both. I mean, that's the amazing thing about humans is we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Grief is weird. It comes at weird times and it doesn't really make sense a lot of times. So you got to just kind of take it as it comes. That's what I talk to my patients about. I mean, I haven't lost a parent yet. God help me. Like... It just comes in waves and you just kind of, you can't fight it. You can't control it. You have to ride the wave. Yep, you do. You don't have a choice. 
reaching out to family, friends, and not being alone because you are in this solitary profession in many ways, like making sure you stay connected, making sure you yeah. take care of your body and your mind. And like, I mean, what do you do to manage stress? I mean, are you exercising these days? Are you like, I know you love that face. I was. <laughs> are you Are you like crocheting or like, what are you up to? <laughs> I read a lot. I try to exercise. I obsess over music. So I sort of try to keep my mind off of music as much as I can sometimes. Mm, mm, interesting. Um, I actually listen to very little music right now. I don't know why that is, but I, I can't. If we get in the car and the girls are putting on Taylor Swift or something, I just can't. I can't hear. I just can't hear the sound. I can't stand it. Interesting. I, uh, I play a lot of chess. Oh, yeah. That's a great distraction. I actually do a lot of woodworking. I build a lot of chess boards. Woodworking, I find very sort of th calming and therapeutic and sort of hypnotizing. So I, I really do like So whether or not you know that, that's like a coping strategy and like a stress management thing is like using your hands and like creating something that's not like for someone else. It's like just the process. I mean, it's really fun to make something physical because I spend all my time playing music, which is eventually you get a vinyl record, but the rest of the time, you're just playing the guitar and singing or whatever, and it's all very sort of cerebral and out on the internet or something like that. Yeah. So it is fun to have a physical product. If you had one piece of advice for someone who was struggling like in their 20s, early years, maybe they wanted to go into music and they didn't have the confidence or the self-esteem or they were sort of like wobbly on like career path and just like self identity kind of thing what would that piece of advice be it's a huge question that maybe there's not one piece of advice but like how would you counsel your younger self or someone who is vulnerable and young and just at the outset of their career i guess you know just some cliche like you gotta be true to yourself i know what that's that sounds like a hallmark card but if you really want to do something like play music or something you really can't fake it the people that are faking it are it's so obvious from the get-go that they're in it for the wrong reason or something like that so i can only speak having chosen music as my path but i would say that one of the hardest things for me ever was moving to a completely free form on my own boss i have no schedule there's nobody who's got a plan for me before that, I was in high school, college. I came from a good family where they supported me and they helped me evolve over the years. Luckily, I was making enough money to pay the rent and I was finally able to make records like I always wanted to do. When that came and I finally had that freedom, I will say the first couple of years of it, I didn't even enjoy. I didn't even like it. I was always motivating myself to write songs when I was sitting in class, not listening to the professor. And it was great. Or on the weeknights when we had to cram it in. It was our passion, but you're sort of almost like getting away with something. You're kind of shirking your other duties. And it was like almost kind of like rebellious side thing. And when it became the main event, that freedom was just terrifying and still is. So my only advice would be watch out for that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Just prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. Well, yeah, it's kind of like a be careful what you wish for kind of thing. Be careful what you wish for because it's tough. I think what I'm getting from you, though, is that you've kind of grown into yourself. You have a lot of tools at your disposal that maybe you just don't identify as like coping skills, but like being with your right. kids. I mean, I don't even know. I don't see a therapist or anything, so I don't really know. I mean, you know, hearing those things from you, it's interesting to hear because I don't know the speech. I mean, well. look, there's no mandate that people should be in therapy. And, and I'm not going to be the like the older cousin right now and just be like, hey, you got to do some therapy because... That's tempting to do that. And I don't think that it's a panacea, but I do think that, I mean, at least I've benefited in my life and I've certainly sent patients to therapy over my 22 years of seeing people from having that objective outside person. And as I say to people all the time when I'm kind of advocating for them to 
see a therapist, it's not because you're crazy. It's because you're human. I don't have any stigma with it. I mean, I, I think probably 95% of my friends see a therapist. When we were little, it would have been gossipy or something, I feel like, in the 80s. But now... You I mean like other people would have gossiped like, oh, they're in therapy. I think it would have been like, uh, yeah, what's, what's wrong with that person? I feel like the world has changed since then. Yeah, I think in a good way, there's less stigma. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, of course. I still hear, though, all the time when I suggest therapy to patients, they'll say, well, you know, what would they do that? And what would they tell me that I don't already know? Or I know I need to quit alcohol or I know I need to leave this unpleasant, unhappy marriage, but like they're not going to tell me what to do. And I'm like, well, the therapist isn't there to tell you what to do or to like tell you things you already know. It's really to process feelings and thoughts and to help you kind of move the ball forward. I actually sometimes describe it as like the brain trainer, you know, like going to the gym, like you flex your biceps, right? Like you go and you work out your brain. Just processing what you've been through him, which is pretty extraordinary in the last many years as an artist, as a father and as a son, I think you're pretty cool. And I think you're pretty inspirational. And it's fun to be talking to you because I look up to you a lot. I do. Thanks, Lou. I appreciate that. From the older sibling. From the older sibling. The validation, which if I haven't given it to you before today, that's on me. Ham, thanks for joining me and thanks for being so honest. Yeah, Lou. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals, which should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C. Thank you. Thank you.